0: Well, we are in 1 Corinthians 13 tonight. This is a very well known passage of Scripture. And uh, so we're going to read, we're not going to read the entire chapter. We'll read verses 1 through 7 tonight. And then we'll look at uh, that the qualities of love. This is known as the love chapter. You've heard it at a lot of weddings and that type of thing. But uh, we need to go through it and understand it. So let's go ahead and stand together and read this uh, passage, verses 1 through 7. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own. It is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you that we have a biblical description of love that you've given to us. And, Lord, we know you want us to be loving people. You want us to be known for loving each other. And uh, in fact, your word tells us that that's how the world will know that we're your disciples by how we love one another. But Lord, we uh, want to be a loving congregation. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be that, that we would uh, care for one another's needs, that we would think of others first, and uh, Lord, that you would help us to just be known as a loving church. And Lord, that uh, we would welcome. Those who come through our doors, uh, Lord, that we would uh, have a desire to see people come to know Christ and uh, just that that love would constrain us, that love would uh, motivate us to be your people in this world. And Lord, that uh, even in the world, as we are at work or in our uh, weekly associations, that people would see the love of Christ in us and that it would be genuine. So, Lord, help us uh, tonight as we look at these things that uh, we would understand them um, more clearly and that uh, we would strive to be uh, what is being described here by Paul. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Most of us would understand that the Bible is God's revelation of himself to man. In 66 books in both the Old and New Testaments, his word reveals to us who he is and we would never know any of this without his self-revelation. But 1 John 4:16 gives us the most fundamental characteristic of God. God is love. The love of God drives all his other attributes. And in the same way, love should be the primary characteristic of his people. John MacArthur writes, It is tragic in many churches, as in the one in ancient Corinth, that the love that is basic to Christian character does not characterize the membership or the ministry. This was one of the greatest problems in the church at Corinth. Love was missing there. The spiritual gifts were present, according to chapter 1, verse 7. The right uh, doctrine was present, according to chapter 11, verse 2. But love was absent. So that's why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13. And many people believe that this chapter is the greatest passage that ever came from the pen of Paul. It has been read at countless wedding ceremonies. And from a literary perspective, it cannot be topped. And because it is so beautifully written, studying it systematically is a lot like pulling petals off of a rose one by one. The beauty of it is lost as we dissect each individual part. Be that as it may, we desperately need to make sure that we rightly divide the truth contained here, especially as it relates to spiritual gifts. So we are, in fact, going to pull the petals off the rose one at a time. As each detail is understood more fully, it can even serve to enhance the beauty of the whole. Now, some have said that this chapter is a breath of fresh air in the midst of all the division and chaos of the Corinthian church. It is an oasis in the desert of all their problems. It's a positive note in the midst of almost continual reproof and correction. Now, you won't find a definition of love in this chapter, but you will clearly see what biblical love is. Sometimes definitions are not nearly as helpful as experiencing the real thing. You know, you could read the definition of a rose in the dictionary, but it is a feeble substitute for the sight and smell of the real thing. You could listen as someone describes a sunset. But that is nothing like experiencing it firsthand. And what we have in this chapter is a display of love, not a definition. It is critical for us to keep this chapter in its proper context, in between chapter 12 and chapter 14. Too often, it is pulled out of this context and often misunderstood as a result. In fact, much of the power and beauty of this chapter is missed when it is studied out of context. We always need to remember that it is given as the centerpiece of Paul's teaching on spiritual gifts. So as a way of grasping how it fits with Paul's teaching on spiritual gifts. You could say that chapter 12 deals with the endowment of the gifts. Chapter 13 addresses the enemy of the gifts. It is absolutely critical that we understand all the gifts are to be exercised in genuine Christian love. You could say that love is the fuel that propels... All the gifts. And here in this middle chapter, we find the proper motive for the operation of all the spiritual gifts. This is the more excellent way that Paul referred to at the end of chapter 12. Now it should be obvious to us that love is far superior to the arrogance of those who think. They don't need the other parts of the body, which is what we saw at the end of chapter 12. It is certainly superior to the opposite attitude of feeling resentful and inferior because we don't have the showy gifts like someone else may have. And so we need to understand that these gifts must operate on the basis of love. Now, the Greek word for love in this chapter is the well-known word agape. And while it is one of the rarest words in Greek in ancient Greek literature, it is one of the most common words in the New Testament. The basic meaning of this word is charity, and that's how it's translated in the King James Version. There are other Greek words for romantic or sexual love, and for expressing feelings of sentiment. There's another word, the word Philadelphia, that describes brotherly love. But this word agape is uniquely Christian. While the idea of charity has really morphed into the giving of money to the poor... The true meaning of agape love is pictured in this chapter. is much broader than just our idea of charity today. Few people in our society really know what true love is, including many Christians. John MacArthur writes, Self-giving love that demands something of us, love that is more concerned with giving than receiving, is as rare in much of the church today as it was in Corinth. He says the reason, of course, is that agape love is so unnatural to human nature. Our world has defined love as either romantic feeling or attraction, which has nothing at all to do with Love in God's terms. In fact, the supreme example of agape love is God's love toward us. We all know John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only begotten son. This is the key element of agape love. It is always sacrificial. It is always giving. It is not really a feeling at all. It is is a determined act of the will that results in an act of self-sacrifice. It is a willing, joyful desire to put the well-being of someone else above our own wants. And of course, this kind of love leaves no room for pride, arrogance, vanity, or self-glory. It is the opposite of that. And it is this kind of love that is to be the mark of the church. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. That's John 13, 34, and 35. Agape is the trademark of Christianity. This is how the world is going to know we're truly His. And everything we do as Christians is to be done with this kind of love. In fact, Paul is going to say in chapter 16, verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. And please understand... Right theology is never a legitimate substitute for love. Religious works and activities are no substitute for love. This is the supreme characteristic by which we must be known. So let's move into this incredible chapter, and we read it a while ago, but let's examine those first seven verses By dividing this into two sections, we're going to see the importance of love, and then we're going to see the qualities of love. First of all, note the importance of love. Verses 1 through 3. We might think that it is obvious how important love is, but here Paul makes it crystal clear that love is the greatest thing there is. He shows this through a series of analogies. And by the way, we need to go back to chapter 12, verse 31 for a moment. Uh, Look at that verse with me. It says, But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. This is not an admonition to chase the showy gifts, as some may think. In the context of these three chapters taken as a whole, the greater gifts are those that are most effective in edifying the body. Specifically, it is the primary gift of prophecy, as we will see in chapter 14. And even here, it is not a charismatic understanding of the gift of prophecy, but the reiteration of the revealed word of god it is not necessarily new revelation even in that day in which this was part of the gift of prophecy but now that the canon of scripture is closed that as- aspect of prophecy has ceased but the gift of prophecy now is the proclamation of the Word of God that has been revealed. This is the preaching of Scripture. And when we get to chapter 14, we're going to see that's the primary gift. Why? Because it edifies the body. The gift that is the most effective for edifying the church is the gift of prophecy. And we're going to see that that when we get to chapter 14, it is far superior To the gift of tongues. But the important thing for us to see in chapter 12, verse 31, is that this is not an admonition to chase after the showy gifts, which is what the Corinthians were doing. And they were pursuing those showy gifts apart from love. So Paul says, no, no, listen, let me show you a more excellent way I want to show you what it looks like when everything is properly motivated by biblical love. And that's really what that verse is about. So here we see a series of analogies that make the point. First, he says, eloquence without love is nothing. Eloquence without love. Look at verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. This is a figure of speech known as hyperbole. In this case, he exaggerates the limits of imagination in order to make his point about the superiority of love. Now, I don't know what the tongues of angels sound like, but if I was able to speak that way and yet did not have love, I would just be making a loud noise like a gong or a clanging cymbal. And by the way, some of the people who read this try to turn this into something special about the language of angels here. Uh, Some even claim that's what speaking in tongues is. It's speaking the language of angels. But listen, that's not Paul's point here. Paul's point is eloquence, not angelic language. MacArthur says there is no biblical teaching of a unique or special angelic language or dialect. In countless records... Of their speaking to men in Scripture, angels always speak in the language of the person being addressed. They always speak in clear human language. Don't read into this more than is here. Paul's point is that a person could be the most eloquent person that has ever spoken, but if he's not Motivated by agape love, he would be about as useless as someone going around banging a cymbal or making some kind of loud noise. Now, there also may be something else inferred here. Paul may have in mind the Corinthians' abuse of ecstatic speech, which they had mistakenly substituted for the biblical gift of languages. This was the one thing that they seemed to prize above everything else, and is something that he's going to deal with in chapter 14. But here it is worth noting that in that day and time, there were religious rites honoring the pagan deities, such as Sibylle, Bacchus, and Dionysus, that... ...included the speaking of ecstatic utterances accompanied by gongs and loud clanging cymbals. So there may be a connection here. They also would include, along with that, loud blaring trumpets. But the original hearers would have immediately gotten the point. None of that pagan noise was any better than the faithful exercise of the spiritual gifts properly motivated by biblical love. and They had come out of that false system of worship, so they would have immediately gotten the point. They knew that was demonic and was diametrically opposed to the gospel of grace. But Paul uses a second analogy in verse 2, where he makes the point that prophecy... Knowledge and faith without love are nothing. Look at verse 2. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. In the beginning of the next chapter, Paul will speak of the gift of prophecy as the greatest of the spiritual gifts because the prophet proclaims God's truth To people, so they can know it and understand it. But here he utilizes another hyperbole in saying that even prophecy must be exercised in such a way that it is tempered by love. One way you could say what Paul is saying here is you could say the best preaching in the world is just a bunch of noise without love. The same thing applies to knowledge and even to faith. Listen, a person could have all the knowledge in the world, able to understand every fact in the created universe, but if they did not have love, they would be useless. And think about this. If that is true concerning some fictitious person with that kind of knowledge, how much more does it apply to those of us who have far less knowledge than that? What happens with people who think they have a lot of knowledge? You know the answer to that. They get puffed up with pride, don't they? In the church, they may become pharisaical Knowledge may lead to some sort of spiritual snobbery. This is the opposite of love. So while Paul would say that spiritual knowledge is good and wholesome, knowledge devoid of love can become something destructive in the church. Genuine knowledge must always be accompanied by humility and especially agape love. Same thing is true of faith. And understand, the word for faith here is referring is not referring to faith in general. It's referring to the gift of faith. All of these analogies are built around comparisons with other spiritual gifts. But what Paul is saying here is he's saying, even if a person had this gift of faith, this wonderful gift the the god-given ability to trust god for great things beyond normal faith even if someone had that to the degree that they could move mountains if they did not have love it would be worthless It'd be worthless then he goes on and says benevolence and martyrdom without love are nothing look at verse 3 And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Agape love is always self-sacrificing. But self-sacrificing does not necessarily come from love. Even an act of extreme benevolence, like giving everything you have to feed the poor... Would not mean anything in God's sight if it was devoid of genuine love. It would not matter how many people were fed. The giving that comes from a legalistic motive of obligation or selfish gain or recognition of some kind does not accomplish the purpose of God. Spiritually, this sort of charity is worthless. Only benevolence that is properly motivated by genuine agape love is worth anything in the sight of God. But notice the second half of verse 3. And if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now, some commentators believe that this is in reference to becoming a slave. In this case... The burning would be that of a branding iron. But since Paul seems to be using the most extreme examples here, I think this probably refers to being burned alive. I think it is probably referring to martyrdom. MacArthur says when persecution of the early church became intense, some believers actually sought martyrdom as a way of becoming famous or of gaining special heavenly credits. But when sacrifice is motivated by self-interest and pride, it loses its spiritual value. Even accepting death for the faith profits me nothing if it is done without love. So the bottom line is this. The loveless person produces nothing, is nothing, and gains nothing. I mean, think of it this way. Write down a string of zeros. Add them all up. What do you have? It doesn't matter how many zeros you put. You still have zero. But if you put a one in front of them, suddenly you have something. If you put love into the equation, then suddenly you have something important. Well, in verses 4 through 7, Paul moves to the qualities of love, the qualities. And here in these verses, Paul shines love through a prism, and we see all its glorious colors and hues. This is an incredible picture of biblical love. And even before we start looking at it, we need to understand that unlike most English translations that include adjectives, all the Greek terms here are in the form of verbs. They're not adjectives. They're all verbs. What does this emphasize? It emphasizes that biblical love is more about what you do It is more about what love does than what love is. Agape love is active. It is never passive or abstract. You see, love is really only love when it acts. And to change the metaphor, Paul is now painting a portrait of love. And Jesus Christ is sitting for the portrait. He lived out all the virtues of love to the greatest degree. The beautiful portrait of love is really a picture of Christ. In fact, you could just insert the name Jesus every time you see the word love in this chapter. First we see love is patient. Love is patient. Look at the first part of verse 4 there. It simply says, Love is patient. You know, someone has defined that as the ability to be inconvenienced or taken advantage of over and over again without becoming angry or upset. John Chrysostom, who was an early church father, said this. He said, it is a word (coughs) that is used of the man who is wronged and who has it easily in his power to avenge himself, but will never do it. This is love. Like agape love itself, this kind of patience is a virtue that was only seen among Christians. The Greek world saw this as a weakness. They did not see this as a virtue, but biblically, clearly, it is. and the ancient... Greco-Roman world, getting revenge was something that was valued. Vengeance was virtuous. And they tended to make heroes out of those who fought for their own rights and stood up for their own selfish interests. This is much like our world today. But love is always demonstrated by patience. Patience. This kind of love is more concerned about others than self. It's willing to be taken advantage of without seeking any kind of revenge. And of course, the supreme example of this quality is found in God Himself. It is God's patient love toward us that really prevents the world from being destroyed. It is His patience and long-suffering that allows Men, time to repent. Second Peter three nine says the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is patient toward men. And again, all these qualities of love are found ultimately in our Lord, whom we are to emulate. And throughout history, we have seen human examples of this. You know, one of Abraham Lincoln's earliest political enemies was a man named Edwin M. Stanton. Uh, He was really vicious uh, toward Lincoln. He called Lincoln a low, cunning clown. Uh, He called him the original gorilla Uh, He said, uh, quote, it is ridiculous for people to go to Africa to see a gorilla when they could find one easily in Springfield, Illinois. But Lincoln never responded to this slander. But later, when he needed a secretary of war, he chose Stanton. And when his incredulous friends asked why, Lincoln responded, because he's the best man for the job. Years later, as the president's body lay in state, Stanton looked into the coffin and said through tears, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. Lincoln's patience And love, ultimately, won out. Secondly, love is kind. Love is kind. Uh, That's the next phrase in verse 4. Just as patience will take anything from others, so kindness will give anything to others. So, in a way, you could say that kindness is the counterpart to patience. To be kind means to be gracious, giving, and serving. This is active goodwill. It not only feels generous, it is generous. It not only desires the welfare of others, it actually works to accomplish good for others. This is what Jesus was talking about when he commanded his disciples to love their enemies and do good for them. It's not enough to simply feel kindly toward others. You also have to do something kind for them. J. Vernon McGee said, love without kindness is like fire without heat. What kind of fire is that? It's not really fire at all. So we can't simply say we love somebody. We have to do something to show we really do. We have to show some tangible act of kindness. Thirdly, love is not jealous. It's not jealous. Go back to verse 4 again. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not Jealous. This is the first of eight negative descriptions of love. This is saying that biblical love and jealousy are mutually exclusive. Jealousy, or envy, has two basic forms. One form says, I want what someone else has. If they have a better car than we do, we become jealous of them. If they are praised for something, and we're not, we become jealous of them. But there's an even worse kind of jealousy, and that is when we say, I wish they didn't have what they have. The second kind of jealousy, not only is more selfish, it also desires evil for someone else. It says... I hope something happens and they lose what they have. This is obviously sinful. Listen, jealousy is not just some moderate or harmless kind of thing. For some people, this is the toughest battle of the Christian life. Some people battle jealousy all the time. Why? Because there's always someone else that has... More than you do. There's always someone else that's better than you are. There's always someone who's more talented or more uh, attractive or or has uh, more success in some way. And so it's easy to fall into that trap of jealousy. But this is the opposite of biblical love. It is not to characterize the lives of. Of Christians. Number four, love does not brag. Love does not brag. The Greek word for brag in verse 4 appears nowhere else in the New Testament. It basically means to speak in a conceited way. In other words, love does not parade its accomplishments. Bragging is the other side of jealousy. Jealousy is wanting what someone else has, but bragging is trying to make others jealous of what we have. You could say jealousy puts others down while bragging builds myself up. And it is ironic that while most of us can't stand bragging in someone else, we can still be inclined to brag ourselves. Someone once said, boasting is the only disease that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. The Corinthians had a problem with this. They were spiritual show-offs. They were constantly vying for public attention. They were clamoring for the most prestigious offices and the most glamorous gifts They all wanted to talk in church at the same time, especially if it was in an unknown language. Why? Because they thought it made them look good in the eyes of others. And they thought it made them look more spiritual than anybody else. What's the problem with bragging? It puts self first. It is totally a self-centered act. And again, Jesus is our example here. Listen, think about this. Jesus was God incarnate, and yet he never exalted himself. Think about it. Jesus, who had everything to boast about, never boasted. In contrast to that, we who have little to boast about often boast. Only biblical love can prevent us from tooting our own horns. Fifthly, love is not arrogant. And we'll end with this one for tonight. That's the last phrase of verse 4. <clears throat> the Corinthians were puffed up and were conceited about their knowledge of doctrine, their spiritual gifts, the famous teachers they had in that congregation. They were arrogant instead of repentance they were boasting instead of mourning over their sin pride and arrogance tends to breed contention and the Corinthian church was just full of that they needed a fresh dose of biblical genuine agape love this was the answer to the problems of the church at Corinth. Well, we didn't get all the way through this, but we'll pick it up here next time. Let's pray together, and then we'll stand and sing. Father, we uh, thank you once again for your word. We thank you that your word tells us all about these important qualities that we're to have and uh, things that we're not to have, uh, the things we're to avoid as well. So, Lord, help us to be wise in this. Help us to be loving. Help us to uh, uh, be uh, marked by true biblical love so that others will be able to see Christ in us. And, Lord, we ask that you would enable us uh, to be that kind of people, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.